Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Dr. Lucy Fergus about urinary incontinence in the older patient. Lucy is a geriatrician and the medical director for Older Persons Health, Rehabilitation and Allied Health Services at Hawke's Bay Hospital. She also works privately at Aging Well. Welcome, Lucy. Thanks, Louise. Today we're talking about urinary incontinence in the elderly female. Does the definition differ in this population and how common is this issue, Lucy? The definition of urinary incontinence is involuntary leakage of urine and that applies across any age group. It is common. Actually, up to 50% of women will experience some urinary incontinence in their lifetime and it increases with age, so it's an important problem for older women. The impact of urinary incontinence can significantly affect a woman's quality of life and the complications can be far-reaching. How do you commonly see women presenting? I find that people often don't volunteer that they're having troubles with urinary incontinence. Um, It's a private thing and not everyone wants to talk about it. So there is some um, embarrassment associated with urinary trouble. And I think the way that you ask the question to a patient um, is important. So asking whether someone maybe sometimes has an accident or needs to rush to the toilet or know where toilets are is a little bit less confronting than asking someone if they have a problem with urinary incontinence. They're probably likely to say no to that. Urinary incontinence can stop people from going out. So I meet a number of patients who tell me that they don't like to go out unless there's going to be a toilet nearby, and that leads to social isolation. Um, can lead to loss of sleep if you're getting up multiple times at night to go to the toilet, and that can be for a spouse as well as for the person affected. And sometimes people rushing to the toilet fall. So urinary incontinence can really impact on your function and your independence. There's also the cost. Um, A lot of people are buying urinary incontinence products, pads and things from the supermarket, and they're really expensive. And sometimes they may be eligible for some funded products, but they don't want to speak up or they they don't realise that this is not just a normal part of ageing, but something that could be improved. So what are your key questions when you do ask and you are taking a history? So I try to start gently with a question around whether an older woman has trouble with the bladder, such as do you... Do you rush to the toilet? How many times might you get up at night time? Or are you sometimes wet? And if you frame things in a supportive kind of way, then often people are really relieved that you've asked and will be happy to talk to you about their urinary issues. The history that I try and take is is trying to define the type of incontinence that the older woman might have. And we we divide these into some categories just just to better understand what the cause is and therefore to manage them appropriately. So the types of incontinence are stress incontinence, which is where the pelvic floor muscles aren't strong enough and the person will have some urinary leakage when they cough, sneeze or laugh. So I ask those questions. Do you have leakage when you cough or when you sneeze, when you laugh? In a person who has overactive bladder or urge incontinence, the bladder contracts before it's completely full and that can cause leakage or, or frequency. And so I ask that person, or I ask all people, to try and find out if they have um, frequency, how often do they need to go to the toilet? Urgency, can they hold on when they get the urge to pass, or do they really have to rush to the toilet? And how many times do they get up at night time? So more than three times per night um, is abnormal. Some people might have a mixture of those symptoms, so they have some urgency um, and frequency, but also will have some stress incontinence with leakage when they cough or sneeze, and we call that mixed incontinence. 
And it's also important to think about functional incontinence. So that's when there's a problem with continence that's not related to the urogenital tract itself. It might be to do with dexterity, being able to get your pants up and down, get yourself to the toilet and off the toilet in terms of mobility. It might be to do with your cognition, um, your judgment of when you need to go or your ability to find the toilet. And so trying to unpick in your history what is the cause of the incontinence, you might find that there are clearly that there's clearly one type of incontinence or that in fact that there's a mixture of causes. In terms of other history, it's important to think about things that might be making incontinence worse. So if you ask someone about their fluid intake, how much are they drinking and what time of the day are they drinking it? Are they drinking a lot of caffeinated drinks? Because caffeine irritates the bladder, smooth muscle, and can make the bladder contract involuntarily, causing that irritability or overactive bladder. Alcohol has a diuretic effect, so that might make someone need to pee more often or have trouble controlling their bladder. Do they have trouble with constipation? Because constipation will impact on continence. Um, the, if the bowel is full, it reduces the amount of space in the pelvis for the bladder. And so if you have a full rectum and constipation, you won't be able to hold on to your urine as well. Are there any red flag kind of symptoms? Um, do they have a history of surgery? Do they have any symptoms of maybe a vaginal prolapse after a hysterectomy? Do they have symptoms of pain or weight loss or hematuria that might make you think about a malignancy? So it's important just to think about other secondary causes that might be less common but might trigger a, um, a specialist referral. And do they have symptoms of urinary tract infection? So smelly urine, um, burning or stinging, um, because something acute like a urinary tract infection might be making them incontinent now and might be a reversible, easily treatable impact um, for them. It's also um, important to think about what medications they're on and whether that might be impacting on their bladder function. So it's a fairly broad history um, covering the types of incontinence and then some of the other lifestyle type factors, medication factors and their health issues that might be contributing to bladder problems. It's important to consider um, the impact of urinary incontinence on sexual function for the older woman. Urinary incontinence can be extremely embarrassing and can impact on sexual health. It can be extremely off-putting and embarrassing for someone who has urinary incontinence if that impacts on their sex life. Um, and the psychosocial impact of that can be really large. It's important to ask about that. It might be um, something that people have some difficulty talking about, but it's important to ask. It's also important as part of your history around someone's urinary function just to check that there's not some red flags around um, maybe, maybe pain on intercourse, maybe vaginal discharge or how the urinary problems are impacting on sexual function. Fantastic. Those are great points, Lucy, and something we don't often ask. You mentioned polypharmacy or medication use, and this is problematic in this group. What classes of drugs do we particularly need to consider? I think if we look at medications, there's a long list of side effects that are potentially going to impact on people's um, bladder function often things that can cause constipation, which have anticholinergic side effects. So, for example, tricyclic antidepressants or antipsychotic medications can reduce the bladder contraction and stop the bladder from emptying well, which can lead to worsening continence. 
Anticholinergic medications also cause constipation. And as I explained, constipation can lead to worsening of bladder function and incontinence. So it's important to think about those. Um, and opiate medications similarly causing constipation and then leading to bladder problems um, because the bladder is not functioning because of the bowel problem. Um, another huge group which are commonly prescribed in older people and impact on continence, of course, are diuretics. And they may be important for heart failure. Sometimes it's about thinking about the timing of those medications, um, maybe smaller doses spread out, maybe taking them in the afternoon if you need to go out in the morning and you know that you might need to rush to the toilet. So if you have difficulty controlling your bladder already and then you add diuretics to, the, to that mix so that that person then has a more full bladder in a short period of time and they can't hold on, you can make the incontinence worse. Often with older people, it's, it's about balancing. We might need the heart failure medication. We might need the anticholinergic medication, but we also don't want to make the urinary incontinence a whole lot worse. So it's about using the lowest possible dose that you can if it's necessary and being aware that if you're starting new medications, um, that the benefit of those new medications needs to outweigh the side effects. So if you need an antidepressant, does it need to be amitriptyline? Because that's probably going to make bladder function worse. Could you think about maybe an SSRI instead that's not likely to make someone's urinary incontinence worse? So it's really about individualising the treatment, looking through each of the medications and thinking, are they needed? Can we stop those? Could they be impacting on bladder function? Is there something that's an alternative if we do need something in terms of medication? Could we use something else that's not going to have that same side effect? Yeah, excellent points. Thank you. Now, previously you mentioned red flags. What things do we need to look out for and what would require an urgent referral when thinking about incontinence in this age group? So in an older woman with incontinence, the things that I'd be concerned about that would make me want to refer on to a specialist would be anything that raised a suspicion of malignancy. So if someone has pelvic pain, if someone has a mass that you can feel on examination, hematuria, vaginal discharge, or if they have maybe a mixed fecal and urinary incontinence that's quite an acute onset, those kind of things need a specialist to look into what's going on. People who have recurrent or persisting urinary tract infections need further investigation to see why that's happening. A straightforward urinary tract infection that's treated and resolves, that's okay. But if you're getting multiple urine infections, it might indicate that there's something else going on in the urinary tract that's causing that. Um, or if the infection hasn't gone away, then that needs to be looked into by your urologist or your urogynecologist, depending upon where you are. In older women, urinary retention is not as common as it is in older men, but um, it can happen. And so if someone has symptoms of retention where they've got... Um, feeling of fullness in the bladder, a feeling that they can't empty the bladder completely, um, constant leakage, which might mean that they're in overflow, or just inability to void urine at all, then that needs to be um, addressed urgently. So it's crucial, Lucy, to determine the type of incontinence because this determines our management. So I wonder if we can just talk about this again. So let's go through the classifications once again of incontinence. So starting with stress incontinence. Okay. It is important that you know what kind of incontinence you're dealing with so that you can treat it appropriately. So stress incontinence, as I mentioned, is when the pelvic floor muscles are not strong enough to hold in the urine from the bladder. And that's often in older women who have weaker pelvic muscles due to, due to age and often due to um, vaginal deliveries 
um, having had children, weakens your pelvic muscles. These people will complain that they leak when they cough, sneeze or laugh. And that may have been going on for some time, for example, since they had their children. It's important to identify that because the treatment for stress incontinence is to look at pelvic floor strengthening. And so you need to identify that that's the predominant problem there. And it might also be that those people will respond to losing some weight if their BMI is greater than 30. Overactive bladder or urgency or urge incontinence is when your bladder um, contracts when it's not completely full. For some reason, the, the nerves from your bladder going to your brain are telling you that you need to pee when actually you probably could hold more urine. And it's telling you that you need to pee in a hurry. Your bladder's contracting and you've got to get to the toilet. Now, this problem, again, you want to identify because you might want to look at their caffeine intake. You might want to look at bladder retraining, which is a program where you ask people to take some fluid on board and then when they get the urge to void, they're going to hold on to help the bladder to reset um, so that it can, it can hold more urine before the nerves from the bladder tell your brain that it's time to go. Bladder retraining is an effective treatment for overactive bladder or urge incontinence. You might find that people have mixed incontinence where they have some of both of those problems. So they might have weak pelvic floor muscles, leak when they cough, sneeze or laugh. And they might also have an overactive bladder that is telling them that they need to pee often. And so you might want to combine those two treatment modalities there, some pelvic floor muscle strengthening and some bladder retraining to try and help them. The other big group that we need to think about, is, especially as people get older, is whether there are functional issues that are impacting on their continence. So if somebody has trouble with mobility, they can't get up and out of their chair, down the hallway, in and out of the toilet, on and off the toilet quickly enough, then they can become incontinent. If, um, for example, you have an older woman with rheumatoid arthritis, she needs to use her walking frame, it takes her a little bit of time to get up and out of the chair, down the hallway, into the toilet. And then once she's in the toilet, she needs to be able to manage to get her clothing down and to get herself onto the toilet before she starts to void. And you can see how um, a lot of people can't get to the toilet in time and there are a lot of older women who are wearing an incontinence product just in case um, they can't get to the toilet in time. And there might be some really easy things that we can do to help that person in terms of maybe a commode in their, in their bedroom overnight time, perhaps looking at a raised toilet seat and looking at their mobility aids as ways that we can help their continence. In the functional incontinence group, it's also important just to think about impaired cognition. So as people get older, there is an increasing rate of dementia or cognitive impairment, and that might impact people's awareness of when they need to go to the toilet and also their ability to find the toilet, particularly, for example, in a hospital-type environment or an unfamiliar place, the ability to problem-solve where a toilet might be. So cognition can impact quite profoundly on people's continence as they get older. So thinking now about an examination, a thorough examination is always important. What do you specifically look for in your physical examination, Lucy? I'm always careful to check to palpate for a bladder to see if there is a distended bladder palpable um, and to check for any masses in the abdomen. Um, I mean, a general physical examination for someone's overall health is a good place to start, but when we're targeting in on um, urinary incontinence in the older woman, if they're comfortable to have an examination of the perineum and looking at the external genitalia, 
you might see signs of estrogen deficiency, which you could treat with some topical estrogen cream, and that can be effective. Also, um, a vaginal prolapse is not uncommon, and the prolapse itself can obstruct the bladder outlet and make it difficult to void. So looking to see if there are signs of vaginal prolapse is important. If there's a history that there's constipation or if you're concerned that there might be, um, considering doing a rectal examination to check for fecal loading as part of the examination. And thinking about the functional incontinence issues, having an idea about someone's cognitive abilities, so maybe a brief cognitive screen. And you probably will have already done, um, by observing your patient, a brief assessment of their um, mobility seeing how they mobilise from the waiting room into your room, how they get on and off the chair in the waiting room, will give you some indication as to whether or not there might be some functional components to their incontinence that you might be able to help with, for example, by referral to physiotherapy or having an occupational therapist look at home equipment for them. Um, a urine dipstick is important, so you want to exclude um, a urinary tract infection. So taking a urine sample, if you can, is an important thing to do. And if you have any other red flags or any other concerns from your history and examination, you'd obviously follow those and do a more thorough examination in those areas if you're concerned about a, a less common cause of incontinence, such as a neurological problem, you might want to do more testing in that area. Tell us about bladder diaries. Do you use these? And if you do use them, what do you ask the patient to record and for how long? Bladder diaries are useful if you have... Um, the ability to fill one out. So again, you want to make sure that your patient doesn't have cognitive issues, otherwise a bladder diary is going to be very difficult and inaccurate for them. So bladder diary is when you ask the patient to record their fluid intake and their um, trips to the toilet and how much urine they think they've passed each time. So they don't have to actually measure it in a jug, but you want to get an indication of whether they had voided a small amount or a large amount over the course of the day. It's useful because it can tell us sometimes if people are um, drinking a large volume of fluid that could be contributing to their incontinence. More often in an older woman, they're likely to have a lowish fluid intake because they often self-fluid restrict to try and prevent needing to go to the toilet all the time. And unfortunately, then you can get concentrated urine, which irritates the bladder and can make overactive bladder worse. So if you can fill out a bladder diary, it's a good thing to do. And doing that for three days would be a great period of time to get an idea of the pattern of what's going on. Want them to record for you how much they're drinking and what at each time of the day. When they go to the toilet, how much they think that they voided, um, whether they had urgency, whether they were incontinent, or if they're using an incontinence pad, how often they've needed to change their pad during the daytime and nighttime. Uh, so Lucy, we're looking at these bladder diaries. What are the norms that we would be expecting? So fluid intake, fluid output, number of times getting up at night, number of times going to the toilet during the day. What sort of things should we be looking for? I actually find it varies quite a lot. Um, the, the norms for night time are three times in the night or less is deemed normal. During the daytime, I find that it can vary quite greatly Fluid intake is a big driver of how many times you'll void in the daytime and quite a lot of older people don't drink very much fluid. So you might find that a person's drinking a litre or less during the day. Ideally, we'd like people to be drinking more like two litres a day to try and make sure that they maintain a nice dilute urine. You should be able to hold on to your urine and not need to void for a few hours during the daytime. So 
I would say abnormal is if someone is needing to void every one to two hours. Ideally, I'd expect that someone could last longer than that. And over night time, they should be able to sleep for most of the night, maybe only getting up two or three times. But there is quite a lot of individual variation. And it's important to talk to people about what they were like when they were younger as well. As some people might have had a smaller bladder capacity or have a um, higher fluid intake and more of a um, frequent voiding pattern that's long-standing. So a change from their baseline, multiple episodes of voiding during the day, and asking them, are they voiding just in case because they're concerned about being wet, or are they voiding because they really feel the urge and they need to void? So the bladder diary itself, I guess, is a little bit of an indication about what's going on, and you'll need to talk to the person to find out if this is a big change from what they were always like, and um, exactly what's going on when you have those episodes of going to the toilet. Of course, if you ask someone to focus on something, you're likely to get um, a slightly different picture from what it's like in their day-to-day life. So they're just, um, the bladder diary is useful, but it's, it's part of the picture, I guess, for us to get an idea of what's going on for that patient. Great. Thanks for clarifying that, Lucy. So referring on for further testing, such as post-void re- residual scanning and neurodynamic studies, which women should we consider doing this for? Eurodynamics is a pretty invasive kind of testing. Um, I reserve that for younger patients, so I I very seldom refer older people on for that testing. Often Eurodynamics is done in in a urology kind of setting in patients who you think might go forward for surgery, and usually surgery is not the best option for an older woman with incontinence. So so I very seldom refer patients for Eurodynamics personally. A post-void residual scan, however, is a really useful thing. So if someone's getting recurrent urinary tract infections, it might be that they've got some urine in their bladder all the time that they're not emptying properly and that's allowing bacteria to grow there. And being able to get a scan to see that they are emptying their bladder completely after they pee, which is the post-void residual, is, is really helpful. So in my area, I can refer to um, a district nursing continence service who will do a post-void residual scan in a person's home. But another way of doing that is also to refer for a urinary tract ultrasound scan. Um, And when they go for the ultrasound, the person can be asked to go with a full bladder, but then also to void, and they can, with the ultrasound, see whether the bladder completely empties. So so if you're worried about someone with recurrent urinary tract infections, um, getting that imaging of the upper urinary tract and knowing their bladder empties at the same time is a useful thing to do. Or if you suspect they might be in urinary retention. So it's really that that group where you think that there might be retention or recurrent urinary infections where the post voids useful. Urodynamics may be just in the person who you think might want to go forward for some surgery. So moving on to management now, do you have some general advice for this for the older woman? Yes. Um, I I find a good history and discussion about fluid intake is a is a useful thing to do. Caffeinated drinks, as I mentioned, can um, irritate the bladder smooth muscle and cause that irritability of the bladder. So if people are having a lot of caffeine through the day, that can be making things worse. Um, So I ask about caffeine intake and I ask about alcohol intake because of its diuretic effect. I ask about their fluid intake and the timing over the day. If someone's having a lot of nocturia, for example, um, it might be that they're having fluid quite late in the evening that last cup of tea at night time might be a driver 
for them to be wet overnight and might be something that can be changed quite easily. I talk about ideal body weight in people who have a BMI greater than 30 because being overweight increases the intra-abdominal pressure, increases pressure on the bladder and can increase stress incontinence. And if someone is able to lose some weight, then it can dramatically reduce their, their stress incontinence. Bowels and constipation, getting a history about how often bowels are opening, whether they're using any laxatives, whether the stool is hard or whether they strain. Again, um, it might be something that you can intervene with that's going to make quite a big difference. I ask a little about cough. Could it be smoking? Could it be the ACE inhibitor that's causing excessive cough, which is making the incontinence worse? And it might be that you need to deal with the cough to try and improve the problem. And uh, what about exercise and fitness? Um, Increasing their exercise and cardiovascular fitness can improve continence, it strengthens muscle, but particularly targeted pelvic floor muscle strengthening. So if someone has incontinence, have they ever done pelvic floor exercises? Is that, is that something that they routinely do? Is it something that they've done in the past and just stopped doing? Because that can be really helpful for people with stress incontinence. So teaching pelvic floor exercises is an art I've found over the years. Um, is, this, is it something that you teach or you will routinely refer to a pelvic floor physio? What's the best way to optimise these exercises, Lucy? The research in this area shows that a specialist physiotherapist is best for pelvic floor muscle training. So if you have access to that either through your public system or through a private physiotherapist, that's going to be the best course of action for someone who needs pelvic floor strengthening. Interestingly, um, there has been a UK study that showed that it didn't really make a difference whether you were doing this as part of a group or as a one-to-one -one individual session with that specialist. It's more about having frequent contact with someone. So I suspect it's like many things to do with exercise. It's about building a habit and having someone who keeps you accountable for that, teaches you how to do it correctly for starters and then checks that you're actually doing it. So although there are some great handouts and some people might be really self-motivated to undertake their pelvic floor exercises at home, I think a referral for a specialist to oversee the pelvic floor strengthening program is a really good idea. You mentioned some good handouts. Is there any ones in particular that you use or refer people to, websites? Um, I think that Continent New Zealand do have some really good resources there. There's also some nice guidance um, around incontinence that has some patient resources. So I, I tend to refer to my physiotherapy colleagues who give out those resources more than giving them out myself, but there are quite a lot of good resources out there that we can, we can link to this podcast if that's useful for people. Fantastic, thank you. Okay, so we're going to talk specifically about stress incontinence now. Is it useful to grade stress incontinence? And if we're going to do this, how do we do it? There are grading scales, you know, a, a mild, moderate or severe. So mild might be when you just leak a little bit if you're doing something high impact like sports or dancing. Moderate would be leakage when you cough or sneeze and severe might be when you, um, you, you stand up from the chair and you, your bladder just lets go and you have an accident. Um, I'm not sure that it's as useful as actually talking to someone about the impact on their life because for somebody with mild leakage, if it's having a real um, psychosocial impact on them, um, stopping them going out, then I think the severity is more than just mild if it's, um, if it's really having a bad impact. So it is useful to know how much, how often and how 
you know, what kind of volumes are we talking? What kind of, how, how many pads are we needing to use? But I think alongside that, we also need to talk about how's it impacting on your life, on your mood, on, on your situation. It might be that you've got moderate or severe incontinence, but you cope with it quite well. and It doesn't cause you a lot of distress. Or it might be that you have mild incontinence, which is a, a real change from where you were before, and it's, it's having a huge impact on your um, independence, on your day-to-day life. It's making you isolate yourself. So, so yes, think about how severe the incontinence is, but mostly think about the impact on your patient. And specific management for this type of incontinence? The stress incontinence, the mainstay is pelvic floor exercises and making sure that they're being done well and done over a good period of time. Looking at how much fluid intake that person's taking as well and making sure, as we said, that the other lifestyle factors have been addressed. Um, Overstin cream is a good thing to consider in, in older women because vaginal and perineal atrophy, those tissues... Um, that can lead to a bit of urethral dysfunction that can that can impact. So if women are happy to apply some Overstin cream um, around the urethra vaginal area, then, then that may be beneficial for them. If you've got really bad stress incontinence, and depending upon your overall um, health and your comorbidities, it might be worth seeking a surgical opinion. Most of the patients that I have in this age group would probably prefer to avoid surgical intervention if possible and lifestyle factors. Sometimes it's more about managing the incontinence than really expecting that you're going to fix it in this age group. Thank you, Lucy. Talking now about urgency and overactive bladder, what specifically do we do as far as management goes here? So again, we address all those lifestyle factors and bladder retraining is the mainstay here. So if someone is able to participate in a program so they need to be cognitively intact to participate in a program where they're going to be asked to when they feel the need to void actually not void but hold on for a bit longer and again this is something that can be overseen by maybe your physiotherapist with a special interest in this area it might be the person who does the pelvic floor retraining will also do the bladder retraining um, or it might be a urology nurse specialist or somebody in the urology department who would um, give you the instructions on how to how to undertake a bladder retraining program. Again, vaginal estrogens can be useful. Medications here are not not your mainstay. I think often we do jump straight to medication and urinary incontinence. And what we know is that these medications have quite significant side effects. And as you get older, the side effect profile can be more pronounced because of your other conditions and because of age. So, medications like oxybutynin and solifenacin often cause a really bad dry mouth, um, postural hypotension, constipation, and importantly, they can impair cognition. So you can feel fuzzy in the head or if you have some cognitive issues, they can make those worse. So you just need to have that in mind when you're considering putting somebody onto medication. And what we know is that only about 50% of people who are prescribed these medications are still taking them at the three to six month mark. So they're not always well tolerated and they may not be working for people who haven't had a clear diagnosis of overactive bladder. So if you haven't gone through that kind of um, process of workup um, history, thinking about which type of incontinence the person might have, if you've sort of just jumped straight to medication, it might be that it's, it's going to give them side effects and not be effective. So 
there are um, there are some people for whom medication can be really beneficial if you're sure that it's an overactive bladder and if it's having a real lifestyle impact on them. And if you're going to prescribe the medications, you start at the smallest possible dose and, of course, review to make sure that it is improving their symptoms and that they're not having those adverse effects. So check that they're not becoming constipated. Check their blood pressure sitting and standing. Make sure that there's not any new confusion coming in because sometimes you might be doing them more harm than good with those anticholinergics. I always think about how we can help someone in terms of their environment at home. So often I'll involve my occupational therapist and physiotherapist colleagues. If an older person's having trouble with continence, uh, can they quickly get to the toilet? Does their home environment need rearranging? Can we put a commode in the, in the bedroom for them? Are there adequate nightlights to get them down to the toilet at night time and prevent them from falling when they rush to the toilet? And a referral to our, in my um, district health board, we refer to the district nursing continent service and people may be eligible for some DHB funded continence products, which can substantially help if there's a financial burden from buying those privately. So thinking about those things, are there pads that could help? Are there things for the bed, um, a waterproof sheet or a, a Kylie so that if they are leaking at night time, it's not going to require an entire bed change? Do they have the right kind of pad for what they need? Does it hold the appropriate volume overnight time if they don't wake up to get up to the toilet? And so there's all those kind of things as well to think about outside of just just the medications. And is there a role for Botox in this type of incontinence? Yes, actually, the um, urologists have, have a role for some patients with an overactive bladder, and seeking an opinion from a urologist is, is always um, a good thing to do for someone who's having really you know, distressing, difficult incontinence. So um, Botox injections into the bladder wall um, from, from inside the bladder can reduce that bladder irritability and stop the amount of um, contraction to reduce overactive bladder. Of course, the, the potential side effects there is um, that you paralyze too much of the bladder muscle and then you can get urinary retention. So like everything, there's, there's potential downsides um, to the treatment, but um, a discussion with the urologist as to whether or not that might be the right treatment for an older person, it's, um, it's not too invasive and it might be really helpful if it's targeted at the right person. So considering a referral to a urologist to talk about Botox is another good idea. And moving on to prognosis now, Lucy, what can we tell our patients to expect from the treatment and management we've discussed? It really depends upon what's going on. So if you have an older woman who is a little overweight um, and is suffering from stress incontinence due to weak pelvic floor muscles, she's motivated, she's got good cognition, she's going to lose some weight and she'll follow through with her pelvic floor strengthening exercises, then you may find that she has a significant improvement in her incontinence. If you have a frail older person who has um, difficult to differentiate incontinence, maybe because of cognitive issues, it's hard to get a really clear history about whether there's stress or urge or whether they just don't get to the toilet because they don't realise that they need to go. Um, if they also have mobility problems, um, difficulties with vision, difficulties with dexterity to manage um, the mechanics of going to the toilet, then that person's prognosis is quite different and it's unlikely that they're going to improve. It's unlikely that medications are going to be helpful for that person. So it really depends upon what's going on and whether or not you can find something reversible 
could you reduce their alcohol intake, their caffeine intake, um, go for some weight loss, do some pelvic floor strengthening and um, maybe some bladder retraining. That person may well, well do quite well. Um, for other people, if they're older, more frail, cognitively impaired, your mainstay might actually just be to manage their incontinence. And so it might be about setting up their home environment, making sure they've got the waterproof sheets, the Kylie's, the commode nearby and the referral for um, continence products to be provided so that their incontinence can be managed. So there's a number of different kinds of um, waterproof pads that can be put onto a bed on top of the sheets to prevent um, incontinence from leaking right through into the mattress and causing a really wet bed. And one of those products that we, um, we use in hospitals a lot and they can be purchased for use at home and in the community, we call a Kylie. It's probably a, a brand name or a, um, uh, it might even be a nickname, I'm not sure, but um, some sort of bed pad or waterproof pad that can be put into the bed in the area where someone's pelvis and bottom are going to be overnight time to, to catch any leakage is a really useful thing to do. There's also various waterproof sheet options available, most of them not um, funded through the hospital system but able to be purchased privately. The good thing about those bed pads, I guess, is that if someone is wet overnight time, it doesn't require an entire bed change. You can take that off and put another one on. So mainstays of managing incontinence um, in people who are not likely to improve are incontinence pads, but also products for the bed or maybe the chair, um, so that if there is leakage, it doesn't cause um, real soaking of bedding, mattresses and chairs. Fantastic. Thank you for clarifying that, Lucy. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your top tips be for take-home messages? My take-home messages are it's important to realise that urinary incontinence is not just a normal part of ageing for older women, and so you need to ask about it. You need to have a good structure to get that history and differentiate what type of incontinence the person might have. So understanding urge incontinence versus stress incontinence is important because your treatments differ for those two types as I've been through today. And don't forget functional incontinence. Don't forget that people might be having mechanical difficulty or cognitive difficulty with their incontinence. There are quite a lot of things that you can do in primary care to do that basic workup examination, check for urine infections. But if you're concerned, it's always good to pick up the phone and speak to a specialist in your local hospital. We're always happy to take a phone call and give advice if people need it. Fantastic, Lucy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the reflection and learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources, including Lucy's website, agingwell.co.nz, on our website. Thank you for listening.